Competition. Winners and losers. Zero sum. Here in the West, it's part of our bread and butter. We've been brought up with it, whether it's in the structure of our education system, on the playing field, in the markets or in the workplace. There's a notion that in order for us to get ahead, it means that we have to get ahead of someone else. It's so ingrained in our collective cultural identity that we project it onto everything and everyone else. We assume it's a law of nature because it's a framework that defines our way of life. In order for there to be a winner, there has to be a loser. It's no surprise then that it's so easy to feel like a loser if we aren't constantly winning. But what if it isn't natural at all? What if we redefine what winning actually is? What if, rather than winning at the expense of someone or something else, we win based on what we can give to someone or something else? What if winning means helping others to win too? What if winning means bringing people together, delivering value to others, and raising the waters so that all ships can rise together? I'm Chris Brock, and this is Conversations on Living, a podcast about how to be well, how to do well, and how to live well. Consider it a day spa for recharging your motivation, your enthusiasm, and your joie de vivre. A welcoming place where we can explore how to be better, how to step into life and live it to the fullest, and all from the inside out. This week, I speak to Lindsay Hadley. She's the founder of Hadley Impact, an agency that brings together organizations in order to realize projects that do huge social good. From massive charity events to marketing campaigns, UN initiatives, and mental health projects, she works with big players for non-profit, governmental, and commercial sectors, convincing them to work together to do something that delivers huge benefit around the world, with the philosophy that doing well for yourself means delivering value for others. In this episode, we talk about how to find yourself when you lose yourself, how you need to create a sense of faith, your why, to keep you motivated in the early days of a new endeavor, and how self-awareness is vital in order to deal with the self-doubt, the imposter syndrome, and the necessary discomfort of stepping into the void beyond your comfort zone that's required in order to grow towards your goals and your potential. You can find out more about the work Lindsay does by visiting her site at www.hadleyimpact.com. And before we get started, just a shout out to the guys at Headliner. It's the service I use to make the audiograms with which I promote this podcast. You've probably seen them. They're social media-sized waveform graphics that I share on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and elsewhere. And Headliner is the easiest and most powerful way to do this. So if you host a podcast, check it out at www.headliner.app. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And share the love. Tell your family and friends. Send an email to your boss and CC in the whole company at the same time. Get your granny and grandpa on board and tell them all to tune in to Conversations on Living wherever they get their podcasts or at conversationsonliving.com. That's where they'll find this and other episodes as well as my writing, my meditations and a free download of my latest book, Shine Manifesto. And if you want to carry on the conversation, join our Facebook group. Just search for Conversations on Living and become one of the Convo crew. Okay, that's enough of that. Now it's time to dive into a brilliant and highly insightful conversation with the inspiring and accomplished Lindsay Hadley, founder and CEO of Hadley Impact. So Lindsay, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, You are the CEO and founder of Hadley Impact. And um, you you call yourselves a one-stop social impact shop. um, And you help not-for-profits, brands, uh, work on kind of doing kind of uh, good deeds through it could be brand development, it could be events. Uh, you support them with kind of digital and technological uh, services like web design, things like that. And it'd be really interesting to know where this has come from, where where you got the kind of idea to start this, the kind of work you do, and maybe a little bit about your own personal journey to to kind of make this a reality. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I love talking about, you know, this uh, career path that I chose, because it was really um, something I never envisioned. I didn't, I didn't wake up and say, like, this is what I want to create one day. I just put one foot in front of the other. And I definitely chose a life of running towards suffering and trying to help alleviate um, pain in the world and seeing disparity and and seeing the world in a way it could be and wanting to do my part and realizing that vision. 
and uh, and then led me here. So I feel like so blessed to have had a life um, of that it feels like has so much purpose. And I have uh, so many incredible people in my life as a result of choosing this path that have come because the types of critters that also run towards suffering tend to be really magical and people that are quite loving and empathic and treasures to me in my life. So <clears throat> I feel really, really grateful. But I started out in my early career doing humanitarian work in the field, just traditional aid type work. So building schools, medical dispensaries, hospitals, um, you know, things like this that were very much traditional humanitarian aid. And I traveled the world, Mexico, Thailand, Peru, Kenya, doing this work for a nonprofit. And in my early career, I really felt um, that's all I would ever do is just like work in the field. And then I got pregnant. I was, I was married and, and then pregnant with my oldest son, who's now 13, Milo. And now I have three little boys. And I found myself not wanting to trek malaria-ridden jungles. I wanted to like be home more with these babies and figure out uh, how I could do what I am passionate about from home and, you know, have my cake and eat it too, so to speak, and being a mother. And, um, and so I started um, pursuing, you know, more administration and fundraising and event production type activities on behalf of causes I cared about and found that I had a knack for that. And really, um, next thing I knew um, was producing concerts and then eventually music festivals and then, and then led to another um, and ended up being a founding member of an organization called Global Citizen, was the executive producer the first few years of this big music festival in Central Park and the chief development officer there. And off the back of that, I changed the trajectory of my career in terms of the access of who I was working with and things and um, was getting headhunted regularly. People would come to me and say, we want you to help us do what you did for Global Citizen because I raised the first significant amounts of money for them and got them started. And, um, have a real activator in me, I guess, I, you know, I, I help start things. And so I got a lot of people asking me to help them. And I suddenly realized I wanted to work with a lot of these people. These were people I really admired, high profile people, people whose work has really touched my life. And I um, decided to create a little agency so I could actually service all of those demands, you know, and, and I've had an incredible team in the last decade of done these projects um, as a consultant and, and been a part of uh, the building of some really cool initiatives. Sometimes our clients are multinational corporations that have exist, existed who want to like do, do a special project or sometimes, you know, um, even major religious institutions or high profile, high net worth people or um, people from the entertainment industry, celebrities or so on and so forth. Whatever it is, we come in and we help. We're like a special forces team, like this one-stop shop for social good. We do everything from PR and fundraising and influencer acquisition and creative and and event production and strategy and campaigning. And like, we just come in and help amplify and, and make things come into reality. And it's been a real, it's been a real journey for sure. But thanks for asking me about it. Well, this is really interesting because um, one of the things that you you talk about is that you, you kind of have your niche, which is social impact. But within that, you do pretty much everything. So, I mean, you, you know, people talk about how you need to be a specialist to be successful, but you know, you do brand strategic brand development, you do web design, it could be, it could be social campaigns, it could be real world events. Um, how do you kind of keep focused in what your kind of mission is and what you're about? Well, that is such a great question, Chris. Like, yeah, you, if you looked at us, you could very, it's very accurate to say, oh, you're a jack of all trades, master of none, right? That would be totally fair. Um, and, and that is the unique value proposition we bring is a lot of people in social good need, like basically acting CEOs, COOs, they need to like start things. And so they need the special forces team that can wear all those hats. So we come in to start things and because of our breadth of experience and, and because we can do a little bit of everything, you know, there are definitely firms that are better event producers or there are firms that are better PR. I mean, in fact, oftentimes when we have really big campaigns, clients, we will, and there's a big enough budget, we will hire great PR firms like Sunshine Sachs we've worked with for years or, you know, some major global phenom in that thing is specialist. So we know what our strengths are, what they aren't. But, but the ability to wax and wane with the needs of our clients and be somebody who does know a little bit of everything and can put something together for any startup, everyone knows you, you have to wear all those hats. So bringing in a team that knows how to do that is pretty helpful. And then we know how to pick the best talent because we know enough to be dangerous, right? To like get um, the right people who will be good at what they do and hold them accountable. And then um, 
the other component is that we are global experts. We have put in the 10,000 hours and we are specifically hired for what's called the convener model, this meta campaigning idea. This is a trans organizational collaboration, which is a fancy way of saying we get charities to work together. So do you remember, I don't know, you're from the UK, but I don't know if you um, ever saw the American Got Milk commercial that was like pretty famous. Yeah, yeah, that was hugely famous. I mean, it never ran over here, but the posters were kind of all over the internet and, you know, it was very, um, very successful. Yeah. Well-known, it's a well-known like household, you know, brand. It's an example I cite for like what we do in the charity world. That was a campaign that was a meta narrative for the milk industry at large, rather than one brand promoting their product. It was the entire milk industry encouraging consumers to drink more milk. And so they sang in a choir, right? Like, and because of it espousing the same messaging and content, they saturated the market and like a rising tide, all the votes went up. Like the entire milk industry got value from that meta campaign. That's what we do for charities. So we play the sophisticated choir conductor that gets charities to sing the same song. And we've done that on in various levels from global citizen to peace and reconciliation to kids with critical illnesses to mental health. So for example, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, Kenneth Cole, um, the designer called me and said, I'm doing, I want to run a destigmatizing mental health campaign. You know, during the pandemic with isolation, there was three times more crisis text hotline inbound calls for suicidal ideation. And he said, I want the world to like destigmatize us so they feel safe to talk about the fact that being okay, not being okay is okay, you know, like to just talk about our mental health. And so uh, we helped him launch the How Are You Really campaign, which was, uh, how are you? How are you really? And we basically had um, 30 plus charity partners from the Crisis Text Hotline to NAMI, to Trevor Project, to Child Mind Institute, to um, the Harvard Psychology Department. You know, we had all these different organizations, 30 plus charities. And then we ran this campaign. We had A-list celebrities from, you know, Kylie Jenner to Justin Bieber to Deepak Chopra to Sarah Bareilles all posting, how are you, how are you really destigmatizing it, sharing their mental health challenges and the, the mental health challenges of their loved ones, and then tagging a friend and saying like, how are you really, and then getting them to perpetuate that. And 600 million media impressions later and a quarter of a million dollars in, in funds raised, um, you know, and billboards in Times Square and CNN and Good Morning America interviews. I mean, we were able to really help amplify their message. and so. Um, that's an example of like a, a beautiful convener model and Kenneth really understood that, right? So those are the examples of the kinds of campaigns we do. And so uh, I often say, yeah, we are definitely, um, you know, master of none except for the convener model, which is a pretty special, unique value proposition in the market. That's uh, really fascinating because I I've, I think I even heard about that over here in the UK. Um, right. that's uh, great. How are you really um, campaign? But this, I'm, I'm already getting so many questions popping up in my head because this um, this podcast is called Conversations on Living. So it's all about kind of finding personal tokens of kind of wisdom that we can extract from the wisdom of experts like yourself. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot about our internal um, struggles and overcoming our fears and all of this kind of stuff. But recently I did some um, some work in uh, Shinrin-yoku, which is the Japanese art of forest bathing. And it touched on um, some research that was carried out by a, um, a bi biologist in Canada. And she discovered that in a forest, rather than trees competing with each other, which was kind of traditionally seen as the, the kind of way forests work. And so, you know, if you want to promote certain types of trees, you get rid of the other ones actually the forest works better as a, as a kind of single organism. Mm -hmm. So rather than competing for resources, trees actually support each other in order to flourish. And it, it makes me think of your, the convener model, you know, you know, all the ships rising at once, you know, everyone kind of benefits from this, this kind of philosophical approach. And I think personally, very much we're seen as our success is, is very much an individual thing. You know, we have to get our mindset right. We have to get everything right. How much do you think we need to kind of embrace a kind of a more collaborative approach in life? You know, do you, I mean, you're the founder of a, a company yourself. I mean, how much of this was work that you did on your own and how much of this was, is work you've done with other experts from other kind of disciplines and things like that? Yeah, what a brilliant question and conversation to be having, uh, speaking about great conversations for living. I mean, I think that, yeah, at the core of our work, we have to convince others to check their egos and their logos at the door to be a greater than the sum of all the parts, right? 
And we do that through value creation. We, we just have to ultimately build confidence to the stakeholders that you're going to get more if a bigger, a smaller piece of a bigger pie, you know, and it's ultimately better for you. And I love that you can see that validated in the environment, as you mentioned, you know, the organic nature of like a tree ecosystem, like that's so profound to me. And so, um, validates my worldview um, and just the abundance. I think that uh, that we are, I, I understand the scarcity mentality, I understand fear. I've, I've experienced it in my life. I've felt that, you know, especially when you're dealing with um, uh, where others are hoarding, you know, we looked at the pandemic and everyone's running towards the toilet paper aisle, right? Like there is a, I mean, I've totally fall, have fallen victim to like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to think of my needs. So I've got to, you know, worry about my needs, but it takes radical leadership and an ability to be, um, I think, make sure you're being truly honest with oneself, right. And, and avoiding self-deception and saying like, oh, I, I actually am going to be okay. And like, I can come up with a way that will meet the needs of others while meeting my own needs. Right. Like, and, and seeing that as a part of a, a, a truly sustainable model. And, um, you know, a lot of indigenous communities have known this for, for, for centuries, you know, they, 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 they were really understanding of how to live in homeostasis with the environment and the animal kingdom and, and the plant life around them. And then we've come in with some of our extreme capitalist no, notions of scarcity of take, take, take. And, and we've seen some of the negative ramifications of that. And I'm a part of a project right now that is a massive convener model campaign um, and initiative based out of Utah, the third largest freshwater lake in the United, in the United States, and will be the largest water, freshwater restoration project in the world. There's an $8 billion capital stack we put together, this group uh, that is basically going to restore Utah Lake for, for decades. Uh, Geneva Steel and other big groups were pumping toxic sludge, or there's just like a lot that contributed to this deterioration of this lake. And it's now like a cesspool, essentially unusable. And it's in the mountains there, uh, beautiful mountains in, in the Uintas in the United States, in Utah. And we're going back to try to revitalize it, restore it and, and create, you know, um, a, it to be not only beautiful, but a place so that the community can thrive, but also reinstate indigenous species and, uh, and um, animal life. And, and it's just an exciting endeavor to see. And we're using the same exact original thinking. I spoke with my friend Milo, a new friend, uh, an acquaintance who's an amazing member of the Diné tribe. And he talked to me about, we have to, in order to fix our solutions, we have to understand what caused them in the first place. And it's this thinking that's self-serving and selfish and single-minded and short-sighted and doesn't understand the cause and effect and our implications. So I'm going on a little tangent here, but I'll just say, I love that you brought that example from nature because I think there's so much wisdom in, in looking around us to say what actually works, what's worked for centuries, you know, what's worked for millennia, like how can we see the truth about what's before us? So I really enjoy this conversation because um, the convener model really is a, uh, to me, not just something that's like, oh, it's a good thing to do because it's the right thing morally. Like this isn't virtue signaling. It's like, no, 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 this is like blatantly selfish. Like you go further when you go together, you know? And I, I, I'm so, I have such, I can speak with such gravitas because on micro and macro levels, I've seen it over and over and over. And we know it, it's kind of a dumb, smart conversation. It's like, we know, like you said, did I build this company on my own or any of these initiatives by myself? Absolutely not. There's nothing I've ever done on my own. I mean, like, the very, uh, the very uh, partnership with my amazing spouse, Jeff, who's from Australia, you know, and, and my marriage and keeping my family and, and, and being so life-giving and supportive of me, right? Like that alone, I couldn't have done anything without him at my side, let alone the hundreds and thousands of individuals that have made things come into fruition. But how do you design in the capital world that incentive for thousands of people to get involved in something? There has to be some value proposition. And so thinking really holistically and zooming back and saying how it, it takes that other centric approach to think of others, to then be the leader that eats last, but knowing that everyone will get fed if you think that way. Um, and I come from a faith background as a, a follower of Jesus. And like, you know, he talks about this in the scriptures and many other religions to note the same concept of just like the first shall be last, the last shall be first in all things. It's like, you know, you, when you truly find yourself by losing yourself, there's this incredible paradox in this idea and tribal, even if you just wanted to go the anthropological atheist view, humanist view, it's like, yeah, we don't, we don't have very sharp claws. We don't have very, you know, um, 
you know, protruding teeth. We can't run very fast. We can't fly. So how do we survive as a humankind? We have to do it in, in herd mentality. We have to actually protect the group and that, and, and this herd immunity and this, everything we're going on with this pandemic is a giant conversation about that very fact, right? And our, our ability to think uh, holistically and care just as much about the individual while caring about the group, that paradox, that balance, I think is, uh, is the, the tension that we sit in in our work every day. Yeah, that's, that's like, I think you've nailed it on the head, or nailed it on the head, hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the tension that you're dealing with, because the way we've kind of been brought up is, is very much um, zero sum. It's like, I, for me to win, someone else has to lose, you know, and that's how the markets have traditionally been. And mm-hmm. it's how, you know, how we're, we're brought up in schools, even, you know, we have to compete, we have to be the winner, they have to be the number one. And this is actually, you know, even though it's a much more natural model, a convener uh, approach where you're, where you're kind of working to create sort of shared value for everyone else, you know, I benefit, you benefit, everyone wins. I mean, there must be resistance to this. There must be kind of like, well, how can I benefit if you're also benefiting? You know, what mm-hmm. wouldn't it be better if I had both of those? You know, am I only getting half of the rewards if you're getting the other half? I mean, you you must come up against some resistance in this in this kind of work you do. You're absolutely right. We do, um, and then and then the proof is in the pudding, right? Like those who don't get it, you just move forward without them initially, and then they just keep seeing over and over, right? Like it it just works. Like it's not something I. Time, time will convince anyone, right? Enough proof of concepts. So, um, for example, when we first did uh, uh, the first time I ever actually entered this idea of convener model, I mean, I naturally had this wiring as a young person. Like I'm now a professor. I teach a couple classes at the University Brigham Young University of Hawaii, and I teach a social entrepreneurship class. And I was telling my students about this the other day. But as a starving student, like. I, I like, you know, was really poor and couldn't afford very eating out very well and had to eat, you know, top ramen noodles and, you know, frozen burritos and whatever, you know, like in my, in my uh, early college years. And I remember coming up with this idea that, you know, there was a really nice pizza parlor down the street. And then there was a little Mexican restaurant. And I went to the workers and became friends with them and said, you must be sick of work eating pizza all day. And you must be sick of eating Mexican all day. And like, I brokered an exchange of in-kind food and then made sure I got a cut in the middle. And I was transparent about that. And everybody loved me for it. And I ended up eating free all the time at both facilities. Right. And like that kind of thinking of like, Oh, what's in it for them. That kind of, so I already had that wiring really young. And then my first philanthropic events, I started putting together, I would share with other organizations to create value. But the first time we really nailed like the uh, model was with the Global Poverty Project um, and a campaign called The End of Polio. It was a giant music festival that I executive produced um, in Perth, Australia during the eve of Chugham, the Commonwealth Dignitary World Meeting. And we gamified the engagement. We had people win their concert tickets instead of purchasing them. And so instead of relying upon ticket sales and merchandise and um, sponsorship and donations for the profit margins of the event, which is what I'd done to date at every other charity concert I'd an event I'd been a part of, um, we thought differently. We we got behind the Goliaths who've been beating back polio for 25 years, the Rotary International and UNICEF and the World Health Organization and Bill and Linda Gates Foundation. And right now everyone viscerally understands pandemics, but polio, what we don't realize is it's not quite eradicated. It's 99% eradicated. It's only endemic in a few countries, but you know the incidences are growing, going gone. We take for granted in the first world that it is completely gone, but it's an infectious disease and we all know what can happen with if, if we take that right if we make that assumption and um other than smallpox we've never eradicated a disease and so you know we're on the brink of being able to do that for polio and that's something we could cross off in the development sector and then put our resources towards something else right tackling other issues like corona and all kinds of other issues we have but this is one of those where we got behind them and i remember we were meeting with some of those stakeholders and there was one particular executive in one of these big multinational goliath un ran entities and they were like, you're Johnny come lately, like polio's our thing, you know, and there's this posturing in this um, territorialism. And I understood it because they're living in a world, like I, I looked, I think we looked at it with a lot of compassion, our team did, because I, we live in a world where there's, the philanthropy world is like relying upon the disposable income of people and the disposable attention of people after their consumer world, right? Because we can't spend money on overhead. That's a whole nother conversation that I think is an archaic way to think. Charities aren't able to like play the same 
sport that the private sector can with hiring the best talent and marketing and telling their story and taking risk and all the things that are fantastic levers for growth and innovation. And so they were very threatened. And, and we, we said, no, 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 we're, we're going to give you stage time at our concert we paid for with John Legend and Hugh Jackman and all these big people we've gathered and you get to be the bell of the ball. And, and then the funding that comes from the advocacy that we're going to get the prime minister of Australia to give, you're going to receive it. And they were just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it was too good to be true. Like, wait a minute, you're paying for the campaign. You're letting us have, and you're a 501c3 too. You're a tax exempt charity. You're a competitor. Well, we're not a competitor. We're sitting as like a traffic cop where we positioned ourselves as like a PR engine behind you guys. And we're getting behind you. So you get behind us so we can win like a rising tide off all the boats come up. And they were just skeptical the whole way until they learned that we were sincerely functioning in that role. We went and got outside resources and outside value and brought it to them. And then eventually they've gone on to become an incredibly huge partner. And that event and campaign was able to leverage a funding commitment from the Australian government, which was matched by Bill Gates for a total of $118 million for polio. And at a dollar per vaccination, that was 118 million people. We've since eradicated polio in India since that time in 2011, and our 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 efforts were directly tied to that. Something I'm radically proud of in my career that I got to be a part of. Right? I mean, generational poverty ended. I mean, people ending in India in the third world country. If you end up in a wheelchair, that's a death sentence for generations in terms of, you know, abject poverty that you know cliff you're going to head off. You know what I mean? So it was just, it's just really powerful. And I just can't not see it. It's something I can't unlearn. You know what I mean? So what we do is we just have patience when that resistance comes, Chris, we just, we just say, Hey, I, I understand. I get it. I get that. This is the experience you've had in the world. You feel like we're in a battlefield with everyone with guns. I'm actually here to help. And it's just like every movie action movie where the guy's like, no, 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 put your guns down. You know, I'm a friend. I'm, you know what I mean? That's the the nature of the work we do. We have to like really truly, we we build trust by actually being trustworthy. This is the kind of hack, I guess. I mean, this is huge. I mean, you're you're doing huge ambitious projects with huge huge outcomes, and you're dealing with huge huge industry partners. There must have been a time when you were first kind of exploring this at Hadley Impact or before, perhaps when you were when you were kind of starting out on your own. That you must've felt like this is bigger than me and I can't, I can't deal with this. How do you go from someone who is just, you know, you've been working in the field, you've been doing kind of charitable work on the, on the front line, if you like building schools to someone who's going head to head with, you know, people from the UN, people in governments, people in multinational corporations. Is there a kind of personal journey that you have to go on in order to have that? You know, you talked about gravitas before, you know, where does that come from? Is there a kind of fake it till you make it? Or is there a kind of, no, I, I'm, I am good enough and I'm not faking anything here. You know, how do you, oh, how do you build that, that up? I love that question, Chris. I'm so grateful you asked it because you're, you're so right. People can, I have a lot of young people that look what I do and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to, I could never do what you want, but I would love to have what you do. I'd love to do what you do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, I grew up with no, I, from a small town in Utah, in literally like a, a little hick town it's called you know woodland utah and it's in the mountains nestled in an hour from the nearest airport you know and uh it really honestly is a um a, a function of just putting one foot in front of the other and and believing in correct principles like being your word and being dependable and working hard and things we all know right treating people well and all these things and then luck, right? Like uh, also that is an absolute part of it. And I think Oprah Winfrey, I might be paraphrasing, but she said like luck is really opportunity meets preparedness, right? Yeah. If you are prepared, opportunity will eventually come. That's just, that's, you know, but relative opportunity. It's like not everybody meets a person that leads to this thing. But but I will say that, um, and I feel totally humble. And I think anybody's accomplished anything if they're not honest with themselves about the amount of luck and opportunity and the blessings, the grace of God, if you will, of like things working out. Cause there's so many times these different projects could have failed and, you know, and been deadly. And like, we've had lots of failures along the way, right? It's the entrepreneurial spirit of pick yourself up kind of thing. But yeah, like the fake it to you make it comment. So funny you asked that because when I was first starting out my career, I went to an event with, um, a lot of these luminary like tycoons and I was an I was nobody I just started my career I got invited by a friend who was connected into this world and I remember being starstruck and like I felt like it was as foreign as the first time I went to Africa you know from 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 a from a western culture I was like this is how people live this is so radically different right like um they 
I went and Donna von Furstenberg and, um, you know, the Queen of Jordan and Melinda Gates were at this event and it was a little women's panel and conference and they had actors, they had, you know, CEOs and executives of, you know, some of the biggest beauty brands and feminine, you know, retail, you know, uh, world. And I just remember being like totally overwhelmed and they had a question and answer opportunity with a panel. And I'm, and I remember I raised my hand and I was like, so how do you believe in yourself? Like, it was basically what you said, like, cause I didn't. Right. And here I was in my like $30, like, like dress that I got from like the little, you know, local retail. And these are in front of like, literally it was like Jimmy Choo, Bobby Brown, and, you know, um, Donovan Furstenberg and the editor of Harper's Bazaar. I didn't even know what most of those brands were. Like I was just sitting, I just knew that these women were ballers. And I was like, how do I, you know, what's like, how do, how do you like learn to believe in yourself? And I think it was Donna von Furstenberg that she turned and goes, oh, honey, you just fake it till you make it. All of us are faking it. She goes, we still fake it every day. Cause the next echelon of like accomplishment or the next goal, right? You're, you're always gonna have as a human being as you as, as progress is eternal. It's like an ongoing thing. Like you're always gonna have like, let's fake it till we make it. Like I guarantee there's Elon Musk is still shaking his shorts half the day where he's going, as long as you're pushing yourself, as long as you haven't you know, plateaued and you're doing nothing. If you're pushing the envelope and horizon of what you wanna become and what you wanna see in the world, like you should be scared because it's scary because it's a high contact sport. You know what I mean? And we all are just kind of faking to make it and realizing that reason, realizing that that divine spark in us, that humanity is like utterly powerful and at the same time, deeply vulnerable and fragile and disposable like that again that paradox that tension that rely that that lies inside us i think is so profound but i just know for me like i you know i just put one friend in front of the other and 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 did whatever i could and and um i do believe god was using me in whatever way possible and i can't tell you how many times i've cried myself to sleep on my pillow and thought i have no business being this audacious and trying these things what if i've let people down and the fears I've had to conquer. And the, I think that the way that I've personally overcome a lot of those hurdles is I've, I've chosen to do this for others. Like I've made my life and, you know, so when I take a risk or mess up or disappoint someone or something doesn't work out the way I hoped, I, I have to rely and remember that, okay, I'm doing this on behalf of others. And that can help me sleep at night. I'm like, well, I know my heart. I know my earnestness. And sometimes my own ego gets in the way and my own insecurities for sure to a disappointing degree. But at the end of the day, like I, I, uh, I know that at the core of who I am and what I'm trying to be in my life is on behalf of others. And it's worth that. It's worth that bravery. It's worth going in the arena. You know, it's yeah. worth play, playing the game. I think that you kind of, um, gave a quick nod to Brené Brown there going, getting into the <laughs> yeah. arena and, and getting a kicking, you know? Yeah. Um, I've I've had quite a journey myself at various different my career has not been a linear thing and uh, during a kind of particular dark night of the soul I, I worked as a um, a delivery driver for uh, driving a van delivering groceries around um, the country it was that actually a great job a great job and That's you would go, great job. What an important job right an now. important job and I met some yeah. amazing people you know some of the best uh, and yeah. cleverest people I've known were van drivers but I would yeah. I would visit a lot of different houses delivering groceries to people. And you would meet people who the reason they're getting their groceries delivered is because they they're too afraid to step outside their front door. Mm. And, you know, I, I've um, you know, we, we talk about mental health at the the, the beginning with um, Kenneth Cole. And, uh, you know, there are people who regularly really have to battle to even get out of bed in the morning and to face the day. And, mm. you know, certainly when I'm when I'm going through periods where I'm trying to create something or I'm, I'm just starting a new project. There are days when I get up and I just think this is hopeless. This is pointless. What is the, the point? And I'm sure, you, you know, you, you spoke about crying yourself to sleep and thinking this is too big. And what, you know, what am I even doing this for? Who am I to do this? How do you snap yourself out of that? You talked about kind of reminding yourself that you're doing it for others, but is there a kind of way you can snap yourself out of it? Do you, do you have a kind of routine or a ritual or just, just a kind of mantra you tell yourself where it's actually come on now let's do this let's get let's get over this and keep keep showing up day after day that's a great question Chris and I'd love to know if you do uh, as well I'd love to turn that question back on you to learn I I I find there's there's two major functions one if I can tap into I, I am a person of faith in a higher power and and I 
if I tap into that, it really helps me. I ask myself and really meditate on what, what does this higher power say about the situation and about me? Like, and to me, God is love, like love is a person. Um, his name is Jesus in my case, but I think a lot of people of faith would agree that that is ultimately what we, what we worship the divine, the divine ultimate end all be all is love. And so like, what does love dictate? What, what does love say about the situation? And that, that helps me profoundly. I could be lucid enough to, to uh, be present to that. Um, and then if I'm not, if I'm struggling to kind of pull myself up by my own hair, because sometimes you can get in the holes, right? You can really, wow, you can really be uh, quite, quite heartbroken and, and victim-minded or, you know, it can really be myopic, your view. And sometimes it's really justified. Sometimes we are true victims, you know, and it's like, people have really harmed us and we feel very unsafe and dysregulated in the world, right? Um, I, I turn to people who are, are people who embody love in my life. You know, I have mentors and friends who are just literally an angels. They're angelic. They're filled. They're like beings of beaming love. That's like who they are. And I turn to them to ask them what they say, to ask their perspective, their paradigm, and just to be in their presence, like, you know, bake in the in the ambiance of their of their light and it helps me remember who i am so i can pick myself up and try again I, i'd love to know for you that that's those are my hacks well this is this is great because um it's really fascinating there's so much that we we kind of think we're we're alone and we have to do the work ourselves um but your whole it sounds like your your whole ex existence in a way is based on bringing people together one way or another, whether that is the clients that you're working for or the, you know, the, the huge UN um, organizations, or even if it's just your, your mental group or, you know, the very, very most personal, your relationship with uh, whatever you believe, you know, your Jesus, God. I mean, I don't have the kind of the Bible uh, in my life, although I, I was brought up in the church, but uh, it never, I never really got it, to be honest. It never really kind of made sense to me, but I do have a, a kind of spiritual uh, practice, which is maybe parallel with it to a certain degree, but I don't have that, that kind of faith. I have to really work on that faith to, mm -hmm. to keep going, to keep kind of, pursuing things especially in the early days when you know like like exercise for example you know you have to really have faith <laughs> that this is going somewhere and that yeah. ultimately there are going to be results out of this and I guess it's the same when you're you're starting up a business and you don't have any clients yet you know you 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 have you've got to have faith that the hard work you're doing maybe the money you're investing and, and the people you're, you're talking to even though there's nothing you're seeing yet you have to have that faith to keep going and that's I think that is a big stumbling block for people who who have done maybe the work on themselves and I, I mean i'm talking from personal experience here you know some someone who maybe can't leave the house but wants to kind of go on to have a, a, an impact or an existence outside of the house or you know someone who is starting a, a business but is terrified to to start their own agency or whatever it is you know I mean, you're the founder of an agency there has to be kind of some inner strength whether you're getting that from your your religious faith whether you're getting that from your mentors or whatever it is there has to be a, a, an inner spark um if i'm going to answer your question i've kind of kind of skirted it a little bit uh i don't know i, I just i get an idea and i i kind of i believe in my capabilities i haven't done anything as grand as start a company but i have kind of dug myself out of some kind of you know emotional holes and um and i think it i've found faith by seeing results even if it's in a small way you know mm -hmm. seeing the benefits of making the hard decisions or facing up to the challenges and seeing how that you know that what i believed was too big for me actually you know you grow to meet it don't you a little way and some of the biggest um, experiences of my life I, i've i lived in new york for a while and when i first arrived there i uh I thought this is too big. I can't deal with this. What have I done? But it, it went on to become the, the best experience of my life. And certainly that's happened a few times. And I mean, you, you talked about if it doesn't feel frightening, then you're not kind of working hard enough. Is that a kind of, um, <laughs> you know, it, there's a, there's a, a quote I keep coming back to Joseph Campbell. He says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. Mm. And uh, I repeat it, you know, pretty much in every podcast. Is there a kind of like, 
this is frightening. So it has to be the thing that I, I do next. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. I, first of all, Chris, thanks for sharing that story about you having that faith background and it not making sense because I personally went through a dark, dark night of my uh, soul and it was like years in the making where, you know, just, yeah, I, I think faith is kind of a gift. It is like easy to have faith in certain situations, right? Like if you're in a dismal, terrifying situation, I just recently spent the entire month of August trying to help family members get up, not, not my, not my family members, friends, families, um, get out of Afghanistan. Right. And it's a lot harder to have faith in a situation like that. When, when the world around you is collapsing, right. Those people, their ability to have faith, but I always find in humanity, there's always like some spark. Like I remember watching him, I think it was a movie that they did on Darwin and how he, you know, lost through his discovery of, uh, the evolution of species. He, he understood through adaptation, like, okay, this is how we were created. And the Bible story didn't comply. And he's such a gift to humanity. Everything he, he, he discovered and the truths he discovered, I think are utter eternal truths, but he ultimately lost his faith in God and the construct, I think, of, of what religion and man has said what God is, right? And uh, there's a line in one of the movies, I, I know, I think there's only been a few, but I think it's the show of Darwin and, and uh, a practitioner's talking to him, a fellow colleague, and just says, Darwin, that's fine, you, you know, you, you no longer, you know, have your religion, but like, why have you lost faith? You know, and I just thought that was so cool because when you said like it takes faith to go exercise, like that's such a practical thing. Like faith is a tremendous, amazing part of humanity, something we actually are given as a tool, no matter how you believe how we got here, right? Like no matter what you believe about where we're going after this life, or like nobody could deny like the power of faith, right? It's just it's just the belief that's, you know, it's the belief in something that's unseen and that you, that is true, that you put your foot forward and you move forward into it. And that there's a bravery in that. There's a, there's a, a co-creation in something like that with the world around us. Right. Um, and I think that in my experience, I'm so grateful for the deconstructing and the doubt that I've experienced in my life, because I can meet someone like you and go, Oh, I get it. Like, I can totally understand why you'd be like, this doesn't resonate with me, but I still have the spiritual components, it's like, I think the world's going more and more the way of what you see because the preliminary like religious constructs are failing us. They're too rigid, you know? Um, and I have a lot of passion and bridging gaps. You nailed it about my life. It's so profound that you said that because bringing people together is literally like what my whole life is about on a, on a very practical level. I live here in Hawaii, which is paradise. And I have like a revolving door. They joke that my, my last name's Hadley and they joke that it's the Hadley hostel because people are just constantly coming and saying, and I'm introducing people all the time and I connect people for a living. And if, if you were to ask like, you know, what is my one gift or whatever, what is my chi? It is collecting the best humans and putting them together. Like it is bringing people together. And so I also find joy in bridging the gap of the tension of the non-religious, the religious, the people of faith, people not of faith, you know, like I, I feel like I've spent my life building bridges and I will always do that. Um, I'm a political moderate, you know, and that makes everyone grumpier and I own no one's team, you know? <laughs> um, but I really genuinely, I can't help it because I just, I think it comes from a par paradigm of, of loving deeply people's hearts and intentions. And I feel like I have an ability to put myself in their shoes and I'm like, oh, I can see how on this side of the aisle you feel this way. And I can see how you have this experience and how can we bridge a gap and have love dictate something because solidarity is a thing that actually can separate us right how can we have love transcend solidarity because if the if the thing we share in common is our belief in the bible then that's the thing that's going to separate us one day right when we have a difference of opinion like i come from an lds background which is the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints many people know as mormons most christians in traditional christianity consider us not followers of jesus and, and would jettison us out of that you know, you don't get to be here because you have this additional dogma and scripture and thought process and beliefs and like, right. And that becomes a division point. The thing that could have brought us together now, or did maybe in one instance, as I'm talking, like probably if somebody on the call is a Christian, they go, Oh, she's, a, she's a Jesus follower. We're the same. Oh, she's Mormon. We're not the same. Right. They just suddenly separated that by some demarcation. But what if we could get past all of those labels and we could go to the heart? What if, what if my, what I call Jesus my best friend in the whole world who's atheist. What if we're part of the same religion and we're, we're part of the same, we're actually ultimately headed the same direction towards light because what she says 
about caring about others and caring for the poor and the needy and the sick and loving on people and seeing that being generous is the greatest way of life and being other centric brings about this, you know, this, this transcendence. That's what Jesus taught. She and I are literally on the same path. We can be brother. We can be sisters in that initiative. Right. Now all of a sudden we're in the same bucket. We're in the same boat. Like, I don't care what you call it, you know? Um, so that's what I'm interested in. And like, how do I, how do I transcend and go higher to see the sum of all the parts? And I think that that's a great conversation in a world that's so polarized today with mask, no mask, vax, unmask, unvaxxed, you know, with politics, with, you know, Trump, Biden, like what, you know what I mean? Like, what, how can we, how can we start in a place where we have shared values? Like I look at an issue that in, in America has been really, um, cumbersome and painful, um, the issue of uh, gun violence, right? And uh, at the end of the day, both parties desperately want to keep our babies safe and from getting shot up in schools. We have different beliefs about on those two different parties about how to achieve that goal. We, can't we start with these are our babies we want to keep safe? Then could we have constructive conversations that aren't demonizing and objectifying of others? Couldn't we then speak through with nuance and care and consideration and respect and love solutions, I really believe we could. And I'm sad to see what's happening in the world of Twitter sphere with little sound bites and conversations and canceling. And I don't know, I think this is a big call to action, like, you know, a big clarion call upon our hearts to change the way we see and think a new thought. I really believe that our, our lives are literal, like probably our survival as a, of mankind probably depends on it with the way things are going. We, it, there's too much at cost, you know? And besides that, like, just on a really practical level, like if we could wake up every day and feel part of something and feel a part of a tribe, right? Um, you know, I look at some of my great heroes that I, in literature, like Victor Frankl, Mansur, you know, for meaning and like these, these amazing um, books that, you know, I've read over the years that for people in the hardest, most harshest circumstances can choose light and love. I don't know, it's just an incredible invitation and conviction on my life. Can I do better? Anyway, thanks for this conversation. It's very edifying. No, this is this is great because just through all of those things you just said, I've, I've had about five, ten different <laughs> questions I come up. and too long. <laughs> so many different directions. And it, it takes me back to um there's a there's a quote by and, and you you mentioned early in the in the um in the conversation about getting past people's egos. And uh, as a, I think it was Nietzsche said, the more we let go of ourselves, the more people reach out to hold on to us or, or words to that effect. Do we think we need to let go? I mean, this, this whole society that we've built for ourselves is all about, you know, this zero sum game, you know, for us to win, you have to lose for the Democrats to win, the Republicans to lose for the, um, you know, the, the gun control people to win the, the gun um you know the people who support guns have to lose um but there's this other other way you know of, of saying hang on nobody has to lose here but we just need to let go of this kind of this this wall of ego that we put in our way i, I had a, a conversation with jeff krasno who's the um the founder of the commune festival and he um went out and spoke to or he opened up his telephone lines to um uh hard uh, right-wing Trump supporters and he just wanted to have conversations about you know what are your why are you voting for Trump why are you kind of so this way in the political spectrum and what he found was just people who wanted to be heard you know they, it wasn't that there was anger it wasn't that there was you know I'm behind this cause I just want to be seen and I want to be heard I mean is that really what it boils down to you know you got this organization or this individual person or this you know this these people who need help and they just need to be seen and need to be heard that's a great i think we all want to desperately be seen and heard and you know i'm even thinking in my own life interpersonally i have a relationship in my life a family member that i just love desperately like i love this individual and we have some tension between us that is breaking my heart and i'm just thinking about this conversations again just a call to myself of like and what, how can I give the gifts that I've been wanting so bad, you know, from this person, right? Like, how can we start with just like our immediate ecosystem? Like I've had a lot of students be like, wow, you know, you're changing the world. Like our campaigns and our projects have leveraged billions of dollars. And yes, we've worked with like household figures that people that, you know, you everyone knows about and wow, that's exciting. And 
But I can honestly tell you, nothing has brought more joy and more like a more fullness of exquisite humility in the most profound human existential sense you could ever say than changing one person's world. Like the one-on-one -on -one interactions, right? Of like, wow, I just saw myself in you. We just connected, we transcended this whole thing. And there's something so profound. It was just born from love. Like, I, I just think nothing matters if it's not done from that, you know? And so I always tell the students that like you're changing one person's world. is literally much more profound than changing the world. And like, how can we start at home? And it's a great conversation to have Chris to start a day. Cause on my side, it's 11 a.m. I'm getting halfway through the day, but I'm getting up there, but how could I walk out and be different to my kids instead of seeing the mess and yeah, clean up the dishes and what, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, relate to something and I need this to look this way, or I need, you know, whatever I've got Christmas shopping. I got to do <laughs> whatever it is. Like, how can I not lose myself in these moments and, and see again, zoom out and see the reality of the gift that is life the gift that the person in front of us are to love, like who's in front of us to love today. And starting with ourselves, like I'll, I'll say this, like uh, this, I'm 38 years old and I know that I loved myself a lot when I was a little kid. I just had, I think we all start whole and then life and circumstances and traumas and things that we all, that unfold upon us. I learned not to love myself. I learned to betray myself to, to purchase love from others. I learned to betray myself. Um, I learned to be codependent in like seeking external validation for my self-worth, right? And that is a very bottomless pit, very empty solution. It worked as a little kid for the most part, got me what I needed to survive, but um, being hyper attuned to other people's needs and then meeting them and contorting myself to meet them to get that love. But now in this day and age, I, I, I'm in a season here in this healing world, little epicenter that is Hawaii, this island, this most incredible healing you know, um, metaphysical presence of it, you know, there's nothing like the warm lapping water on your, on your ankles and the sun, beautiful sunset or sunrise to bring you into your body and make you present, you know, um, picking up seashells with my, my, four, my four-year-old, like that's, that's everything. And as I've been doing this, I've been learning and doing deep, deep, deep work to learn my, to love myself. And I can say there's nothing more important. Like if, if anybody that I come in contact with, if I can be like, oh, don't wait, don't wait to love yourself. Like if you have any struggle and I think some people are like, oh, I love myself, but I think that they'd be surprised at like how much more work you can do in that area. Because a lot of people that say they love themselves, right? We look at certain personalities that are incredibly uh, narcissistic in nature. Well, it seems they really love themselves. That's not love of self, right? Like not at all, not in any form or. You look at people who are really protective and have huge boundaries and are really ball busters and get theirs. And it's like, well, they love themselves. Well, no, that's not what loving ourselves looks like, right? Like if you really love yourself, you, you see yourself in others and you create, you, you create such a different kingdom around you. You know, um, I think all of us could learn to love ourselves more. I think that loving ourselves looks like loving our neighbor and vice versa. They're like an inverse equation. And I just think, uh, I think that, um, we need more leaders like that. We need more leaders who truly love themselves and by virtue really truly love others. And uh, I, I just, I'm so grateful for you and the conversations you're having, Chris. And I love that you uh, had such a cool experience delivering food and, and, and meeting people. What a profound thing. Like, you know, each human life, there's it's infinite value. We can never, we could never measure the good that you do. So every day that you did that with intention and love and interaction, which you seem like such a benevolent sweet human being I, I imagine I bet I bet we I bet if we could see like the ripple effects right of the goodness that would come from that it would just blow our minds well it's really interesting actually one of the things I did notice when you're driving in a van you're, you're quite high up so you can see the traffic up ahead and often I'd be stuck in traffic and there would be cars waiting to pull into the traffic from side roads and of course everyone's in a hurry to get home everyone's grumpy you know no one's letting anybody out but if you let someone out, they're incredibly grateful because they're not expecting it. So they give you a big wave. But often you'll see them go ahead and let the next person out and the next person. And it, it does ripple outwards. You know, it's, it's Beautiful. that energy you bring into the world. And like you, you were saying about kind of loving yourself. Do you think if we can learn to be loving and have faith in our own abilities, our own kind of um, 
identity as decent and capable people, then we'll be better positioned to achieve more and do more and have more impact for for ourselves and our own situation, but also for good. Oh, unequivocally. I think that if we love ourselves and we love others, if love dictates and informs our decisions, um, it's truly magical. I mean, it's radical what it can do, you know, like the healing bomb. I think everyone, you can think of someone who, you know, anyone listening, like take 30 seconds after this call and stop and think of someone who really deeply saw you, heard you, like you said, and made you feel loved. The kind of unconditional love, the kind of like cherishing that you, you know, that we live for on this planet. What did that do to you? How did that change you? How did that shape you, that person? What influence did they have on you? And if you haven't had that kind of love, my goodness, like, how did it feel to give it to someone? What did that do? How did that change you, right? Um, I love the book, Les Miserables, and the, the, of course, the performance. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Hugh Jackman and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness, over the years at Global Citizen. And then I helped Deborah Lee start her charity, Hopeland. I was like the acting CEO for a time and incorporated their nonprofit that's helping vulnerable children. And he plays the most incredible Jean Valjean in the Tom Hooper version of it, of Les Mis. And there's a line in the film and, um, oh my gosh, he just portrays this character so well, this, this redemption, right? This, this human being that learned to live for others, right? Um, because he was purchased by the best pieces of silver of that priest in that beautiful scene. Um, and uh, he basically says, you know, to love another person is to see the face of God. So, you know, if for some reason, because I do know people who've lived a life without that kind of love, if they can give that to them, to others, they can in turn give it to themselves. And it starts to become this very positive, you know, virtuous cycle. And so taking time to think, I mean, what is more powerful, more powerful than that? Like, you know, they often say like, as a professor, I hear this line a lot, like they won't remember what you said. They'll just remember how you made them feel, you know, like. Yeah, it was Maya um, Angelou, wasn't it? Maya Angelou, right, yeah. it was, yeah. And they say that a lot as a, to us as professors, like to remember like why we do what we do or whatever. And um, I just know, um, yeah, I mean, it's literally what's worth living. It's what makes life worth living is that love. So yeah, I, I, I know it to my core that it makes us more impactful. Um, maybe you don't make as much money or maybe you don't have as much accomplishment as if you like bulldozed through people and saw them as vehicles and used and got ahead. But but I don't know that that's how I would measure a life of success, you know, in the end. I do believe impact is done sustainably, brick by brick, moment by moment, loving act to loving truth, you know, and it that's that's what lasts the ages. That's what's around 100 years from now in the fibers of society, you know, in the best way. Yeah. I'm just grateful to know people like you that are doing your part. It's just really cool. Oh, well, I'm very grateful that you, you think that way. I mean... Um... I won't uh, go on too much longer because I know I've already taken up quite a bit of your time, but um, you. one question I have, when you're, when you are coming from a place of love and you want to see people and you want to help people and whether that's through a, a big project, a branding campaign, or whether it's just kind of one-to-one -one with someone close to you, how do you prevent yourself from sacrificing yourself too much and becoming a kind of martyr to other people's um, you know, causes and, and becoming depleted? That is such a good question, Chris. And it's, it is the tension that I've had to learn and I'm continually learning. Um, I think that you, the boundaries, you know, I used to think boundaries were like walls and I didn't want walls between me and others because I do love, I want connection with people so desperately, but boundaries are really loving. They feel gentle. They feel kind. They feel truthful. And like, I do believe what's best for you is best for others, but you have to make sure you're, you're really not in ego and that you're in your tethered to unconditional love when you decide what's best for you. Right. So, um, like, you know, I was speaking with a loved one the other day and about the vaccine conversation and it got into this whole thing. And, um, I just said like, Hey, I just don't think we should talk about this anymore. You know, it was this loving boundary I threw. I was like, look, I mean, I don't think we're going to convince each other. We both know that we have different opinions about this and that we, both want to be safe and we want each other to be safe. And 
I understand. And this is where I've landed. That's where you've landed. That's okay. Right. Like, that's okay. I can't, if, if, if you're interested in learning more, I'd love to, but like, I'm not really afraid of like the conversation and stuff. It's not that I, I just realized we've exhausted the, the sharing. I think we're just now at a point where we're trying to get each other to see it our way. And it just felt kind. It felt like the kind thing to do so that we wouldn't be kind of in a circle and pitted against each other in any way. It didn't feel like a wall. And I've done that too. Like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. You know, I've done that too. Yeah. So it's like, th there's two ways of being when you go about it. This one felt kind and it led to a real sweetness between us, you know, and respect. And I just think we know the quality of it, but it can be confusing if you, if you've taught yourself that self-sacrificing and giving up of yourself and betraying yourself, like I did for so many years is the way to, that is the loving way. Right. But now I can feel the difference. I'm like, oh yeah, that was for me. And it feels abundant. It feels life-giving. It has a different quality to it. I think you can do anything from, you can help the poor from a place of fear, shoulds, anxiety must be seen as better than, right? You can come from these places that are broken or you can help the poor from um, love and from purity and from goodness and from purpose and from inspiration and from gratitude, right? Like, everything can be done from two ways of being. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even need to be this this kind of worthy cause. I mean, it could just be the way you go about your your day-to-day -day going yeah. into the office or going, you know, to buy a coffee, whatever it is. You can exactly. do it in a kind of expansive and open way. Oh, that's the most important part, is that those interact, those expansive moment-to-moment -moment exchanges, because that that's the sphere we have to influence, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the more that we get engaged and the more we get calibrated to that kind of light, we, we just seek greater versions of it and we compound it. It's just, it's like a, it's like a positive addiction. <laughs> for that. So um, I know we're kind of running on to time now. Oh, um, yes. And I, I feel like we could just carry on all day with this. So I know people. you're such a good conversation. <laughs> um, but just to kind of bring things to a kind of natural close if you were kind of encourage anyone to kind of step forward into their into their purpose if you like and to have the the courage and the, the faith as Brené Brown says to step into the arena and be prepared to face that challenge and take that risk and and face the fear is there is there kind of one piece of advice that you could say to encourage someone to just 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 go for it just do it just take that risk yeah, I think have a why, have a why behind you, you know, like if, if it's scary, right? Like any mother, any mother or father would be willing to go and face death and any perilous outcome for a child, right? To protect the, a loved one, any of us would, right? Why do people run into the burning buildings? Why do people run, you know, in real life, not in a proverbial way, like in a, in a literal way, the why is everything, right? Would we run in for you know, money or would you run in for, you know, just to be seen as a hero? Like, no, like we do it because it's actually in our bones that it matters. Right. Like, so I think really getting clear on your why will, will help you have all the courage you ever need. Right? It's what I found. Yeah. Fantastic. I've, I've heard that from, from various different people. It's that, that kind of core motivation that, that keeps you kind of moving forward, even if some days you really don't want to. It's that kind Correct. of thing that makes you get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, well, that's brilliant. Well, I will, I will leave it there. Um, if people want to find out more about uh, Hadley Impact and the work you're doing, where's the yeah. best place for them to go? Yeah, they could go to www.hadleyimpact.com. Uh, that'd be great. That's a, and connect with us there. And we'd love to hear how, how we could help or you, or if there's something you'd like to know more about how we're trying to, make the world a better place like we'd love to have that conversation anytime fantastic well thank you so much for your time i will leave you to yeah. go back and uh, you know change the world with these enormous projects but um what a brilliant conversation i'm really grateful for that thank Chris, you that was such a good one take care much love thank you bye, bye, -bye. So there you go that was a really rather amazing and encouraging motivating and inspiring conversation I love those conversations that are so relatable that give us an insight into the mental and emotional processes of others and that tell us that yes, uh, you can feel the fear but go ahead and do it anyway and achieve great things despite that kind of discomfort and that, that fear, that imposter syndrome. Uh, 
As I mentioned, you can find out more about Hadley Impact at www.hadleyimpact.com and these links will all be in the show notes, so uh, go and seek those out. Next week, I'll be chatting with friend of the podcast, games developer and deep thinker Chris Shrikumar about his latest projects and about how we can work to unravel the stories that hold us back, nurture the stories that serve us, and explore who we are beneath those stories and our storyless selves. In the meantime, check us out at conversationsonliving.com. And until then, have a lovely day.